Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So he told him, my father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michael, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michael said, he's sick. Saul sent the agents back to see David and said, bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michael, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away, and he has escaped. She answered him, he said to me, let me go. Why should I, why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramoth and told him everything Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left and stayed in Naioth. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Nioth in Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Samuel's agents, and they started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and even they began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern in Sekiu and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Nioth in Ramah, someone said. So he went to Nioth in Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Nioth in Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. That is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jesse. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there. You're doing great. Keep it up. My name's Mark. Oops, sorry. 
I serve as one of the uh, pastors here at the Hellos Church, and it's good to be with you this morning. And I am also just very excited that we are all here because it is week two of our in-person gathering in our Edmonds expression, which is just such a blessing. Yes, Jamaica is clapping. I am clapping in my heart. Yes. Uh, we are all really excited to be back, uh, be worshiping in person again together, and I'm uh, very excited for the future as all of our expressions start to get going. So if you would, if you would turn with me, open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to be exploring chapter 9 and covering the entire chapter this morning. Now, if you were with us last week, we studied the second half of chapter 18, and we found that the Psalms are beginning to kind of shed light on the wisdom and the themes of David's early life in 1 Samuel. And like I said last week, that the Psalms begin to give color. They begin to give color to God's protection and to his mercy to David and to others. And this morning, when we are in chapter 19, we're going to be doing the same thing, using Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, as our psalm, to set this thematic tone of chapter 19. So Psalm 121, we heard it earlier in our worship. I'm going to read it to you again. Psalm 121, verse 1 through 2 reads, I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I want to explore that statement in context to David's difficulties. David is going through a hard time. Having finally been classified as an enemy to Saul, his circumstances are seeming grimmer and grimmer and compared to this promise. But as we'll see in Jonathan's advocacy, though noble and sincere, it's limited in its effectiveness. And David's wife, Michael, like pretty much takes every wrong approach to helping her husband and kind of leaves this whole thing in a marital hot mess. And lastly, David seeks, to testif- or seeks the safety of Samuel's company, but Saul is just sending swarms of agents to kill him. So my question is, is if our help comes from the Lord, like how is any of this helpful? How is any of David's circumstance helpful? If we know that the Lord alone is our help, then we also will see that he uses all sorts of people and circumstances to bring it. As we'll discover, the Lord's help is diverse, using people across the spectrum of spiritual maturity to strengthen his anointed. The Lord's help is merciful as God's mercy is on full display in messy situations, and the Lord's help is humbling, showing his power to prevent any and every attack that he chooses. And as the mountains surround Israel, so too does God surround his people. And I'm hoping that we can be strengthened by this chapter this morning, by God's sure promise to be our help in every situation, no matter how bleak. So as we, before we dive in here, will will you pray with me in that direction? Father, will you give us grace to see and hear and experience your word. 
God, I pray that this passage would come alive to us and our hearts would be opened as we seek to be strengthened by you through your son, Jesus, as the Holy Spirit ministers to us and teaches us about your character and your loving grace. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. So first, let's dive into Jonathan's advocacy and see kind of this, these shadows of Christ-likeness within it. So this is verses four through six. I'm gonna read this together. It says, verse four, Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands, and when he struck down the Philistines, the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced, so why should you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Then in verse 6 it says, Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. Yeah, let's see how long this lasts for, right? If you've been studying this first Samuel with us, you've probably recognized that Saul has a tendency to change his mind. He's this, this kind of this character who's first was kind of reluctant, then kind of became this villain, and now he's really full force an enemy against David. But our first conflict is just Saul moving in this direction of moving beyond internal scheming, like we saw in chapter 18, to now he's just externally telling everyone that he hates David and he wants him dead, right? He's just telling people this now. His son, he's telling others that he wants David dead, but he's talking to the wrong person because Jonathan's friendship and allegiance is just on a beautiful display, Full display as he carefully puts himself between his father and David in order to advocate on David's behalf. And we should recognize that Jonathan has an entire throne and an entire inheritance to lose if David is king. But Jonathan is picturing something far deeper that I want to draw our attention to in this moment than just giving up his inheritance. Every Old, every Old Testament promise finds its fulfillment in Christ. Similarly, every noble act, whether personal sacrifice, encouragement, or advocacy found in the Old Testament, shadows the reality we have in Jesus. So what do I mean by that? Let me explain. As beautiful as this moment is, as beautiful as this moment is, Jonathan's plea is based on David's merits. And he is placing himself as David's advocate to show David's innocence. But Christian, we must recognize that the opposite is actually the case for us. We are not innocent. And we come before the Father guilty. But Jesus, as our Savior, dynamically presents us as innocent in himself through intercession 
and advocacy. Jesus is called in the scriptures our high priest. He is our great high priest. And Jesus, as our high priest, he intercedes for us always on our behalf. This is what Hebrews 7.25 is talking about. But Jesus also advocates for us when we are guilty and when we sin, not basing our innocence on our actions, but basing our innocence on his. And sometimes what we tend to do is we either think about Jesus as being all-loving, but we don't necessarily know how, it, how our salvation works, what Jesus is doing as King of kings, Lord of lords. Sometimes we don't quite understand that. And these are two dynamics that I want to draw our attention to. Sometimes we mix up intercession and advocacy because they so closely resemble one another. But if this is your first time hearing these terms also, this is speaking to Jesus' heart towards sinners like us. It's the dynamic of our salvation in Jesus that is his intercession as he goes before as the high priest, and when we fail in sin, he goes after as our advocate. In intercession, he goes before. In advocacy, he comes after. 1 John 2.1, it gives this description. It says, My little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So disciple, I want this to strengthen you. As a believer, one of the most crushing parts of our faith is that we continue to sin against God. And what's worse, our, and what's worse, saving faith, actually, as we grow in Christ, sensitizes us to that. So not only do you sin, but now you start to feel really bad about it. And what's worse, yes, this faith, uh, it, it sensitizes us towards that sin, so... We recognize now that we have sinned, we feel guilty, and that burden begins to kind of weigh heavy on us, and have no doubt that we are called to forsake our sins. The Bible is super clear. In those moments of of sinfulness, when we have forsaken our true humanity, Jesus has not forsaken us. Jesus has not forsaken us. When we sin, Jesus rises to advocate for us based on his innocence and his righteousness that we find ourselves in. I love this uh, pastor, author, Dane Ortland. He describes it this way. He describes it beautifully when he says, these are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, 
and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. Christian, I want you to be strengthened because as we look at this shadow of advocacy, we get to place our hope in Jesus as our true advocate who in our moments of failure rises rises to the occasion to display his righteousness and demonstrate the righteousness that we have in him. Jesus is our advocate. Our mess is met with mercy. Let's continue on and let's see how this real, this mess and mercy at play in, in David's faith and in Michael's mess. So Michael's mess. This is verse 11 through verse 17. And I'm going to kind of summarize this, but I will have it up on the screen and behind me. And it says, Saul sent his agents to David's house, right? Convinced he changed his mind after a little bit of time happened, obviously. He hates David. He changed his mind. He went to go send agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife took notice and warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So we have this moment of Michael, David's wife, lowering David from the window, and he fled and escaped. By the way, slight pause. In my, in my study this week, do you know how many people in the Bible are like going out of windows and have near-death experiences. It's astonishing. There's a lot of people who do that. There should be like, I feel like there's like a, a, a PhD study or something on like windows and death in the Bible. So if you want to know, I'll help you. I'll, I'll show you. Um, so anyway, we're back to her awkwardly lowering David out of the window. He flees. He escapes. Then Michael takes this household idol, puts it on the bed, places some goat hair on it, covers it with the sheets. David's agents come to her. She says he's sick. They go back. Saul says, well, bring the whole bed. I want him dead, right? Bring him on over. They come back, and then they realize what she had done. So she lied first, and then she lies again. This time, Saul asks Michael, why, why did you deceive me like this, right? You sent my enemy away. Take notice of that. He, my enemy. David is now my enemy. But then she answers to him, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Some of the reasons I think that we titled this um, When Mess Meets Mercy is this scene right here. This is just a hot mess. This is a hot mess. From an outside perspective, as we're kind of looking in, we just have to ask ourselves, like, why would God intervene and help David in this kind of situation. Like, what is happening here? There's, there's a lot that needs to be smoothed out. There's a lot that needs to be worked out here. First off, why on earth is David, the man who's killed hundreds of Philistines, this mighty warrior, cowardly, lowering himself from a bedsheet outside the window? And also addressing the other awkward elephant in the text is, why is there an idol in Michael's house? What's up with that? Why is there an idol? And not only that, this idol is called the teraphim. It, is this, it was like the uh, shape of a, of a person, 
right? And it had dramatic kind of parts of the body, but they would be like small or they'd be kind of half size. But this one that they believe is kind of a half size, kind of a big statue, but it's like in a posture of the knees out. So it looks like David in bed is like half spooning, like he's like this weird, awkward idol thing that's, that's going on. So what is that doing there? Third, Michael, is Michael really the heroine, right? She lied to save David's life, and then she lies again to save hers. None of this seems, none of this says holiness to me. None of this seems like, honestly, God would want any part of it. And yet, in the midst of it, in the midst of it, we find mercy. As Psalm 59 would address in verses 1 through 2, it lets us in on David's prayer in this moment where we begin to see some of this faith and the mercy that God is bringing to him. Verse 1 and 2 says, Rescue me from my enemies, my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Rescue me from those who practice sin and save me from bloodshed. Then he would go on to say, awake to help me. Take notice. That's such a powerful prayer. Awake, God, to help me. Take notice. Perhaps the shared experience of the Christian life is that regardless of how we try to fix our lives, our lives are messy. And in that messiness, when we think that God doesn't want any part of it, we discover just how present his mercy and grace really is in those moments. Most of the time, our Christian life as believers is not singing psalms on the hilltops in the mountains saying, like, where's my help come from? It comes from you, right? We're not, like, saying these things. Most of the time, our moments are dramatic acts of what should we to I don't know, to oh, not that, to Lord, forgive me, right? That's most of the time the dynamic that's at play. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And when dramatic moments come, we become overwhelmed, But time and time again, in all our mess, we discover God bestowing mercy. Like a gardener tilling overgrowth to a physician, caring for the complex, our God, through Jesus, is quick to meet us where we're at and take us where he wants us to be. Do you believe that? Had we perfect lives, we wouldn't need any of his help. But as our own experience and the scriptures attest, Jesus didn't come to save those who consider themselves perfect, but Jesus came to bring the sick and the sinners like us into the grace of God. He says in Mark 2, verse 17, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but it is those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Just as God is merciful to David in this moment, 
He is also merciful to us. Overwhelmed, dramatic, messy, emotional us. Often coming to the wrong conclusions us. Trying trying to do our best, but then making errors us. God is consistent in his character to help messy individuals become instruments of his mercy. Amen? Let me say that one more time. God is consistent in his character to help messy individuals become instruments of his mercy. Let's continue on into verse 20 through 24 where we find God protecting David through Samuel's sanctuary. And that's a little play on words because it's not Samuel's sanctuary, it's God's sanctuary that Samuel finds himself in, but we're going to run with it. Verse 20, it says, He sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, With Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and then they began prophesying. Verse 22, when Saul himself went to Ramah, he came to the large cistern at Sekhu and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naoth in Ramah, someone said. So he went to Naoth in Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him. And as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth in Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. And he collapsed and lay naked all day and all night. That is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, before we kind of move into that little second half explanation of why on earth Saul is laying naked all day and all night, we're going to kind of come back up, and I want to address first David's kind of this moment and kind of take a, a, a look and see how this moment, though kind of humorous to us, is, is filled with anxiety and is filled with fear and and difficulties. Before that, I I have this, this, you know, relatively painful memory of my sister and I at daycare when we were around seven or eight years old. My mom and my dad, they both worked, and they both worked really long hours. My mom was a a waitress. She would work all day, and my dad was a machinist, and he would, his shop was in the back of our, um, in a garage in the back of our house, and he would work just from some morning till late at night. So, at school, my sister and I, after school, we would get dropped off by the bus to this, to this house where, uh, this daycare, where these two sitters took care of us. And the sitters, they were kind of a middle-aged couple who were, like, really just the worst, they were, they were the worst. One instance is, like, like, for snack time, they would serve us brown bananas. Like, who does that? You know? That's nasty. But they were also really critical. 
And they would also have moments that I, I remember, I don't remember what they would say, but I just remember their, them being difficult, not wanting to be around them. They would kind of ridicule. They would put down. And as, you know, seven or eight-year-olds, my sister and I, were both were twins, she and I, we didn't know how to quite process these things. Well, I remember this one day that my sister... She had to use the restroom, and she went to the bathroom, but she couldn't make it in time. And so not being able to hold it or, or lift up, lift up the, the, the bathroom, she had an accident in there. And realizing that she had made a mess of this, she became really embarrassed. She became embarrassed, and she tried to clean everything up. She called me to try to, to help. I didn't know what to do. But then we had that, that kind of that realization when the sitters came, and then they saw. And I remember standing at the door with them, behind them, while they just looked down on my sister and just ridiculed her for her accident. They were so angry, and they were yelling so loud at this little girl and I remember looking through their bodies to my sister as she just looked at me with tears in her eyes because she didn't know what to do, and she was looking for me to do something, and I didn't know what to do, and so I didn't say anything. I just kept quiet. And I remember this moment because this, was, this is honestly one of the earliest moments I have a feeling hatred. I hated them. This new feeling awoke within me. I hated how terrible they were being to her. I hated seeing her defenseless. And I hated myself because I was being a coward. I hated my cowardice and not being able to know how I could protect her. I hated that my mom had to work all the time and that we were there in the first place. And where was my dad? Oh, that's right. He was working again because he was always working. I hated work. I hated all of it. And all of a sudden, what started to well up in me was hatred. And as I grew older and older, this seed of hatred would become a seed of Restlessness would become anxiety, would become resentment. And as my family grew further and further apart and more and more dysfunctional, my feelings of hatred, of anger, of anxiety, of resentment would seep just like into every area of my life. So that by the time I was a teenager, I was... I was a wreck. I was filled with deep hurts. I was filled with moments like that of childhood that I just resented. And I was angry over these memories layered with pain. But when Jesus saved me as a teenager, the hatred and the pain and the anger I had felt all those years began to give as Jesus softened my heart towards forgiveness. 
I now had a sanctuary of safety in the presence of God. I now had a sanctuary where I could come and find rest. I didn't have to be angry anymore. I didn't have to be resentful anymore. I didn't have to look at the injustices of my life in the moments of helplessness, in the moments that I was so critical, and I, I could now lay those things at the cross, and I could lean to Jesus to heal me. Jesus doesn't just heal physical wounds. He heals internal wounds as well. But what's more is that my church became my house of healing, where I found that I wasn't alone. Others, the other disciples had hurts too. I didn't feel alone anymore. Friends helped me work out my difficulties through prayer and forgiveness. Might I add, these were mostly teenagers too. There's deep discipleship that goes on in the lives of teenagers because teenagers are able to empathize with each other. And it's a, it's a beautiful healing thing when we see that. God had wrapped me in himself through Jesus in the church. My soul was guarded from others' sins and others' threats attempting to pull me towards those feelings of loneliness, those feelings of hatred again. I was now in Christ. And the deepest reality that I understood was that nothing could separate me from that. David, in this moment, fled to seek a sanctuary. He fled to find a hiding place of comfort and encouragement. And Samuel's home was such a place where we find that it's not just David seeking a sanctuary. It's others, too. Those other people prophesying are in the presence of God, seeking to the encouragement and the comfort through that shared experience. But we shouldn't underestimate how exhausting this must have been. Three times Saul sends his soldiers. And I just want, to put, I want you to put yourself in David's shoes for a second and feel the anxiety that that must have had when you finally flee. Looking off in the distance, you then see those agents coming towards you. Not again. Not again, God. Awake. Take notice. Help me. But then sure enough, God intervenes. But then think about it. It happens again. And then it happens again. David must have felt that when they peered, not again, God. Not again. But in every ambush, we see a loving, merciful father shielding his son from the enemies. What he seeks in Samuel's sanctuary is the assurance of God's presence. But friends, I want to encourage you by saying that this isn't the first time that God has directly stopped enemies from attacking people. We, and similar to Saul, sending his agents to kill David, Numbers tells us of another moment 
when King Balak and the prophet Balaam are going to curse Israel, and they set this whole plot, this prophet Balaam, a bad prophet, not a good prophet, he's coming to go and curse all of Israel, but God intervenes, not allowing Balaam to speak curses, but only speak blessings and physically preventing any kind of barrier from Israel. And instead of hearing a curse from Balaam, this is what Balak, the king who sent him, hears in Numbers 23. God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? I have indeed received a command to bless. Since he has blessed, I cannot change it. He considers no disaster for Jacob. He sees no trouble for Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them. And there is rejoicing over the king among them. The Lord, their God, is with them. But Balak, he sees that and he becomes furious. And what does he say? He says, I have summoned you to put a curse on my enemies, but instead you have blessed them three times. Why is that? Psalm 125, verse 2. The mountains surround Jerusalem. The Lord surrounds his people, both now and forever. Church, the Lord surrounds us from our enemies, so that even those moments of of hatred, even those moments of fallingness, even those moments of anxiety, the Lord surrounds you and nothing can separate you from him. That is a beautiful truth to behold when our lives feel so messy. Jesus is doing far more than we can imagine Far more than we can imagine, but the scriptures just let us in on this. This mountains surround Jerusalem. The Lord surrounds his people. A.W. Pink, he's this old theologian. He says it so well when he says how precious it is for the saint to know that the Lord places himself as the shield between him and his malicious foe. In Christ, we find our sanctuary. We can let go of the anxiety. We can let go of the hatred and of the pain because Jesus, in Jesus, we have the assurance of God's very presence. Now, I should probably address this minor detail, but kind of other elephant in the text. Why is Saul naked? Let's talk about that. As weird and mildly kind of humorous as this is, it's actually just an ironic turn of events where, but it's, it's important, where Saul is being physically removed of his royalty. That picture of him removing his, clo- of his clothing is removing his kingship, removing his loyalty, and his laying himself down is a submission to God, right? And that question, is Saul also among the prophet? That was a question that was asked back in chapter 10 when he was being chosen as king. But now his kingly robes are taken from him. 
The Spirit of God who was once using him to prophesy is now forcing him to lay on his face on the ground in submission to God's authority. Whatever Saul was trying to do is not going to happen. Because the, the picture that goes just beyond that is that God is shielding his people. Now, when we go back to our question of Psalm 121, if our help comes from the Lord alone, how is any of this helpful? I want to summarize just these three reasons why the Lord's help is so good to us. First, the Lord's help is diverse. The beauty of the church is that Jesus' disciples are filled with all sorts of problems. And yet, the church shadows the reality of Jesus in different ways. Each of us has a place in the church and can be used by the Spirit to minister to one another, whether it be a friend advocating, a family member helping, even if they make a mess along the way, or a disciple bringing encouragement through the simple reminder that God is present. The Lord's help comes through spiritual diversity. Second is the Lord's help is merciful. We aren't perfect. God knows we are not perfect. But remember that Jesus didn't make a prerequisite of his forgiveness perfection and ridding your mess before you get to come to him. Your mess is what qualifies you to come in the first place. God is making messy individuals instruments of his mercy. So be strengthened in his help. Thirdly, that the Lord's help is humbling. To really know that the God of the universe not only cares about me, but loves me and protects me and protects my soul from schemes of the enemy, that is truly humbling. The more and more I read through the scriptures and I discover that reality, the more that my walk with Christ matures and develops, the more I see and am humbled by God's wondrous works in my life and his beautiful mercy on my soul especially when I consider all the ways that I repeatedly fail, all of my shortcomings, all of the things that I do, how merciful is God? And this chapter is a, is a testament to God's sure help in times of helplessness, strengthening us by his promise to be our help in every situation, no matter how bleak, because we have Jesus who shields us. So be strengthened, Christian. Your help comes from the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for sending him on the cross to die for our sins so that we might be forgiven of them, be forgiven of our shortcomings. But also remember that in those moments of frailty and weakness that we have your merciful love that surrounds us and we have Jesus as our wonderful advocate. I pray that you would help us realize that our help doesn't come through any other form. Our help comes from you alone. But further, you, you show a multitude of ways that that help comes by way of people in your church through the reminders of your mercy and through our humbled posture as we remember that you, the God of the universe, are with us. We love you and we thank you, God. In Christ's name, amen.